With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbiotica is your solution to great-tasting all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or artificial nonsense. It's just pure goodness in every pouch. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. That's C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. Warning, this podcast contains explicit language and details acts of violence. Listener discretion is advised. Paul Tanaka, a tattooed member of the Vikings deputy gang, elevated to the role of undersheriff under Sheriff Lee Baca. Tanaka has denied affiliation with the Vikings deputy gang, although he is known to have the gang's tattoo. As number two in the department, he oversaw operation of L.A. County's jails. Tanaka installed many deputy gang members to high-ranking positions in exchange for money. A thing about Tanaka during this time, by the way, from Celeste Freeman, who we heard from earlier in the series. She's a journalist and founder of Witness L.A. She covers the sheriff's department. He was also the mayor of Gardena, go figure. And that... It was either you're in the car with me, that was the expression, or you're out of the car, in which case, forget advancement. But those that were loyal did see career advancement. Like Charles McDaniel, a sergeant of Men's Central Jail, he was tattooed with the skull associated with the deputy gang, the Regulators. Under Tanaka and McDaniel, Men's Central Jail became the birthplace of one of the biggest deputy gangs within LASD, the 3000 Boys. This is a tradition of violence, a history of deputy gangs inside the LA County Sheriff's Department. LA is not safe! The county's jails are an ideal breeding ground for gangs. Most deputies get sent to work the jail system straight out of the academy. There's been stories about excessive violence against people incarcerated in the LA County jail system since at least 1978, and they were the subject of a lawsuit. A federal judge ruled that the jails would be monitored by the American Civil Liberties Union, or ACLU, that year, and the monitors have been there ever since. When Tanaka took over the jails, things got worse. Here's Peter Eliasberg, chief counsel of the ACLU. 
there was a lot of excessive force on the 3000 floor. And I think a good chunk of that was a result of a group of people who felt allied and felt that the rules didn't apply to them and were going to do whatever they want. And then they were going to do what they wanted to do. And oftentimes that was use force that wasn't appropriate and wasn't necessary and was grossly excessive. Many deputies are eager to prove themselves by committing acts of violence. In 2011, the Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors formed an oversight panel for the jails called the Citizens Commission for Jail Violence, or the CCJV. In a report, the panel discovered the 3,000 boys inside Men's Central Jail. The 3,000 boys share a tattoo on the calf of a Roman numeral three. Deputies earn the ink by beating inmates and filing false reports to cover up the abuse. Reports describe the walls of the deputy booth in the 3000 block, or unit, of the jail as full of graffiti filled with derogatory writings. A bumper sticker on a wall reads, quote, Don't feed the animals. The first known violent incident involving the 3000 boys took place on April 17, 2008. Deputies ordered inmate Velton Boone out of his cell and beat him. Following a lengthy investigation into the gang, the case was settled for just $950. The brutality inside the 3000 block caught the attention of many. One was jail chaplain Paulino Juarez. I hear somebody was screaming and I see these three deputies beating this person, an African-American. And uh, I'm sorry. And they were punching him. I never see his hands because those rows, always the inmates walk with a handcuff. And I never see his hands trying to protect himself. He just was saying, stop, please, stop, stop. I'm doing nothing wrong. Paulino tried to blow the whistle for years on these deputies, but was rebuffed. Sheriff Baca even told Paulino that he was, quote, exaggerating the beating. Eight years later, in 2016, the two deputies involved in the beating were eventually convicted. One got 18 months in federal prison, and the other got 13 months for falsifying reports with the intent to obstruct justice, according to the U.S. Attorney's Office. In March 2009, 21-year-old John Horton found himself on the 3000 block. John was an artistic person. He had a kind heart. He was strong. You know, um, John was 6'2". He was really handsome. And, you know, and when I say that he loved living life, John really loved life. And he just was so carefree in life. That's John's mom, Helen Jones. He was just a real carefree person. John was just, he just had a lovely spirit. I mean, I'm saying he was perfect. He had a good heart and he loved kids. He wanted kids, but he never had the chance to have any children at all. John was a musician working in the music industry. He worked at his mother's music label. He dreamt of opening up a youth center in Watts if he ever hit the big time. But when John missed a court-ordered appointment for a drug program, his dream was derailed. John was feeling sick, delirious, as his mom puts it. His sister called the paramedics to help. He was later arrested due to a warrant being out for his arrest for the missed appointment. Helen told John she'd see him every day while he was in jail, but the sheriff's deputies prevented that. 
She only got to see her son once during his incarceration. That first visit, that was the only time I was able to talk to John. And I seen him in court one time, but I wasn't able to talk to him in court. But as far as talking to him, it was just that one time. On later visits, she wasn't allowed to see John. During one attempt, the visiting room sergeant told Helen that John was in so-called protective custody or solitary confinement. She was told it could take two months to place John elsewhere and for her to see him. John spent his last birthday in solitary confinement. I didn't buy that because as soon as I went home, I called my family. like, I just tried to visit John. They said that this could take up. They said, nah, Helen, they doing something to him. You know, like my family that been in there. And that's when they told me, nope, they doing something to John. It don't take, you know, two months to figure out where somebody's going to go. So my family had already told me, like, they lying to you. They doing something to John. Then the jail called Helen. They told her that John was dead. They said he had committed suicide after getting in a fight with an inmate while in solitary confinement. My baby is being accused of committing suicide, and I know he didn't. Helen says she was left to deal with the fallout with no assistance from the jail or deputies. They said John hung himself. That's it. Just clear as that. They just say John hung himself. That's what we're standing on. And you got to take the rest of that with the corner. So I never really talked to nobody after that. It was just really the, the corner department that I discussed stuff with after that. At the corner, Helen says things weren't adding up with the suicide story. I took pictures and video of my son. I said, so I have the picture of his scar, how hard he was hitting his forehead with that flashlight and the print left on my baby forehead. An autopsy report confirmed her suspicions. The coroner found damage to John's liver, kidney, pancreas, spleen, pelvis, and a large pink ring of flesh around John's wrist. Additional injuries included a lacerated muscle in his back, a broken nose, and a blood clot and a knot in John's head. The sheriff's department originally stated that John had died by hanging himself. That was eventually overturned to unknown. Helen filed a civil rights lawsuit against the county in 2010 over her son's death. In court filings, the two deputies say they went on a, quote, chow run for food outside of the jail with the blessing of Sergeant Clifford Yates, a self-admitted Linwood Viking, who I spoke about in episode one. One of the deputies said that instead of performing their usual rounds in the 3000 block, they used a barcode cheat sheet to show they did a security check. The deputies claim that when they came back from their chow run, John was dead from hanging. The case settled for $2 million in 2016. That cost was covered by taxpayers. Yates, the Viking who let the deputies leave the jail, retired in 2013. He appears to be collecting a pension of over $140,000 annually. After retiring, he wrote a book titled Deputy, 35 Years as a Deputy Sheriff from Upstate New York to L.A., the book contains racist and transphobic slurs, has Yates describing how he'd instruct his subordinates to lie, admits to committing crimes, as well as routinely violating department procedures while on duty. The 3,000 boys have attacked people outside of the jails, too. In 2007, 
Deputy David Ortega was arrested at Slide Bar in Fullerton, California, after he threatened to fight and kill a bouncer. Local Los Angeles station KTLA got wind of the incident. A so-called 3000 boy who was involved in a barroom fight that was caught on tape. It is a tape that might provide some insight into the swagger of the gang behind the badge. Bouncer Chris Barton was trying to clear the bar for closing. Everyone left, except the sheriff's deputies. Barton asked them to leave, but... He tells us that he's a L.A. County Sheriff's deputy, that he has the right to be here, he's a cop, it doesn't matter what we say or what the laws are. As Barton tries to get Ortega and his friends to go home, he says Ortega gets belligerent. He tells me he wants to fight me, and he's like, I just want you to throw the first punch, throw the first punch. I said... No, I mean, just go home. He's like, what happens if I spit on you? He wants to fight right here. And he spits in my face. He said that him and his boys from the 3,000 boys or the 3,000 block are going to take care of me. He said he was going to beat the crap out of me. He was going to leave me in a pool of my own blood, leave me there to die. Ortega pled no contest. His punishment, probation, and a demotion. And he still appears to be working in men's central jail. One year after Ortega threatened to kill a bouncer, he brutally beat a man inside of Men's Central Jail. Evans Tut was attacked on July 20, 2009, after complaining about the inhumane conditions in the facility. In court documents, other incarcerated men describe witnessing deputies David Ortega, Hernan Delgado, Jason Snyder, and others calling Evans a fucking as they assaulted him. I talked to John Rafling, a senior researcher on criminal justice for Human Rights Watch, about this case. He was Evans' lawyer. They wrote whatever they wrote in their report. It didn't work. The taser sometimes the dart doesn't stick well enough. And, you know, so, so sometimes it works better than other times. I forget the medical term, but the, the dead flesh on his arm uh, gave me a pretty good idea that something uh, was happening. Dead flesh? I forget the phrase that was in the medical reports, but when I, I asked the medical experts, yes, that's dead flesh. So he was, he was injured. The deputies tasered, kicked, and hit a handcuffed Evans with flashlights. His nose was broken in multiple places, his tooth chipped, and bruises covered his head, legs, and torso. Los Angeles County District Attorney Steve Cooley filed against the deputies for filing a false report. Nineteen of the charges were dismissed. Evans filed his own federal civil rights lawsuit against the county and was awarded $400,000 of taxpayer money. About two months after Evans was attacked, a deputy who worked at Men's Central Jail was killed by members of the Avenue Street Gang in a reported case of mistaken identity. Deputies at the jail began beating and threatening to kill incarcerated Latinos. They incorrectly believed that one of them put a hit out on the deputy. After another brutal beating of an incarcerated man, several inmates in the 3000 block refused to leave their cells in protest. Body camera footage obtained by ABC shows Lieutenant Christopher Blasnack, a supervisor at the jail, briefing a group of deputies before they unleashed a six-hour attack on them. And in retaliation, they have started uh, breaking up the porcelain sinks, flooding the rows, lighting fires on the road. 
Heriberto Rodriguez was on the 3000 block in his cell. He covered himself with a mattress and continued his protest. His attack was captured on body camera footage. Several deputies fired projectiles at his leg, entered his cell, and kicked him as he lay on the floor. One deputy pulled the shirt around Rodriguez's neck and choked him until he was unconscious. Rodriguez was shocked back into consciousness with a taser. Tasers were also used on his testicles, armpits, back, buttocks, and the back of his knees until its charge was extinguished. One deputy pressed his knee down on Rodriguez's right elbow in what Rodriguez believed was an attempt to break it. Another clubbed him in the back of the head with a flashlight. Rodriguez was left with a tablespoon-sized fracture on his skull. I was involved in a big case called Heriberto Rodriguez versus the county of Los Angeles. It was a massive jail beating in which scores of cops spent six hours going from cell to cell uh, beating inmates. This is James Muller, an attorney. He worked on Heriberto's case. He had some issues with the supposed oversight of the officers involved. The internal affairs interviews, they didn't ask the pertinent questions. They didn't interview uh, the pertinent players. And predictably, they exonerated uh, the deputies who were involved. Muller notes that the exoneration on the legal level isn't done without some perceived help. We look at the Rodriguez case, where the counties gave us millions upon millions, I think almost 10 million for the plaintiffs and the attorneys. In that case, they had five attorneys, six attorneys sometimes, who basically a, a large part of their job was backing up the lies of the deputies and the supervisors. Now, these attorneys are smart. I'm not saying they explicitly told them to lie, but they knew they were lying. They had to have known, in my opinion. The county was paying their bills. The county was saying, hit the plaintiff's side with anything you got, spend whatever money you need, and essentially, the county was paying these attorneys to help the 24, 25 defendants, deputy supervisors, to go to court, go to deposition, and perjure themselves. So, that's corruption on a very micro level, but it happens over and over again in cases. Muller says the taxpayers are the ones that suffer while these cases drag on and on. They actually hired two outside firms in Heriberto Rodriguez. And early on in the case, I said, look, you see these injuries. My five clients were all beaten into unconsciousness and sent to, sent to L.A. County USC by ambulance. Not one deputy was hit. There's no allegation anywhere that anyone took a swing at a deputy. How, how are you going to win this case? If we keep going, this is a case where the attorney's fees are going to be astronomical because this is a huge incident. This is a six-hour incident. They beat my clients, my five clients, and then there were another uh, 14 inmates that they beat. I said, this case could settle for a reasonable amount or we could go to trial and it's going to cost the county millions. And we ended up going to trial and it cost almost $10 million for the county where it could have been settled for under a million. All funded by... Taxpayers. Yeah, money that could have been better spent. 
the, the 10 million estimate that I'm giving you doesn't even count how much the uh, county paid to their private attorneys. Uh, at trial, there were two of us mainly on, on representing the plaintiffs, and they had five to six attorneys on the other side for a six-week trial. That adds up, I can imagine. Yes, yes. Tired of restless nights? Meet Lisa, the sleep experts. <sighs> Here at Lisa, we know that good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. That's why their mattresses are made for exceptional comfort and support, catering to every sleep need. Check out Lisa's Sapira Hybrid Mattress, named best hybrid mattress five years running. Sleep hot? The Chill Collection is built with cool-to-the-touch top fabric and layers of high-density comfort foams, all intended to remove excess body heat while maximizing comfort. With Lisa, getting a new mattress has never been easier. Delivery is free, and you have 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. Don't spend another night dreaming of better sleep. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com forward slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. That's l-e-e-s-a.com forward slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Men's Central Jail had a holiday party on December 10, 2010, at the Quiet Cannon restaurant in Montebello. The department asked some deputies to be designated drivers so their colleagues could drink. Deputy Christian Vasquez drank 10 beers and washed it down with a shot of liquor. Partygoers said he looked intoxicated. Vasquez, who worked in visiting, says he had a conversation with a deputy from the 3000 floor. The deputy told Vasquez his colleagues seemed to be slow at getting incarcerated men to the visiting area. Around 11 p.m., Vasquez was approached by a group of 3,000 boys in a stairwell outside the banquet hall. They asked him why he was disrespecting them. They began to argue. Deputy Elizario Perez saw the scuffle and tried to break it up, but got caught up in the fight himself. Both Perez and Vasquez were punched repeatedly by deputies affiliated with the 3,000 boys. Over 200 people witnessed the brawl, including Captain Daniel Cruz, who ran Men's Central Jail at the time. Several photographs taken that night show the 3,000 boys flashing their gang sign before the fight, 
three fingers held upward. A female deputy who also worked in visitation, Susie Ayala, confronted some of the deputies attacking Perez and Vasquez. She was punched in the face by a 3000 boy. Several Montebello Police Department officers reported to the Quiet Cannon in response to a 911 call and were told that their help wasn't needed. In October of this year, a special hearing was held by the Civilian Oversight Commission concerning deputy gangs. Former Los Angeles Sheriff candidate Eric Strong was subpoenaed to testify about his investigation into the fight at the Quiet Cannon. Anthony Pacheco, an attorney and former member of the L.A. Police Commission, questioned Strong. There was over 100 interviews. And in those interviews, there were a lot of people who basically said they weren't there, they didn't see anything. And we had video evidence that very, very clearly showed that not only were they there present, but they either protected those that were doing the assaulting by keeping other people away. Um, and they lied in their interview. So when it was presented to, to Paul Tanaka at the time, uh, we presented him with those six that were obviously identified as, as, as the culprits of the assault. And then we began to identify other members that we felt should have been made subjects or could be made subjects in the investigation for giving false statements in an investigation. And we were told, no, that that was not of his concern. He was simply going to make an example out of the six and they were going to get fired. And, you know, I remember my lieutenant even pressing and saying, yeah, but we have we probably have another half a dozen, maybe even to a dozen that we can make subjects. And he got a little, probably a little indignant and basically, basically very firmly said, no, we're not doing that. We're not looking at any of that. We're going to fire these six and that's it. And that was his, his stance on it. An internal affairs bureau investigation into the brawl resulted in the firing of only six deputies. It's unclear if there was an appeals process, which could have resulted in the reinstatement of those deputies. Light discipline like this weighed on strong. Did Mr. Tanaka dissuade you and others from investigating sheriff deputy gang members further in that investigation? I, I won't say that he dissuaded us from investigating further. I mean, at that point, the investigation was pretty much done. And like I said, you know, we we dug in to why the assault occurred, which, like I said, boiled down to a level of disrespect. Um, but he definitely did dissuade the decision makers because as the investigator i'm simply the fact finder but he definitely dissuaded the decision makers which should have been the the chief of that division against um naming any other personnel as subjects and disciplining them if the discipline only went to six members and more people were involved and some of whom lied um what happened to them did they go back into the department they stayed on the department and actually i I know of at least one or two who've promoted since. And uh, Mr. Tanaka was promoted uh, after this, right? He became undersheriff? Yes. The question has arisen, asked by some of the commissioners on the commission, about how is it that law enforcement gangs have endured in the department? Can you address that? The leadership has allowed it. Vasquez and Perez filed federal civil rights suits alleging that LASD was, quote, inadequate with disciplining deputies. 3,000 boy Jason Snyder, 
who beat Evanstutt and was one of the people allegedly participating in the brawl, sued Paul Tanaka after being disciplined, alleging retaliation. Both cases were settled. Federal suits did nothing to reduce the power or influence of the growing gang. By March 2011, Men's Central Jail had a reputation for abuse of incarcerated people. The LA Times reported that year that the department routinely transferred deputies convicted of crimes or found guilty of serious misconduct to the county jail as a way to keep them away from the public. The 3,000 boys continued to unleash violence on their victims. Around 7.30 a.m. on March 11, 2011, William Tillman says the sounds of a porn video coming from the deputy's control booth woke him up. It wasn't the first time this had happened. Several incarcerated people complained about the deputy's behavior. A few days later, a deputy told Tillman that he knew Tillman had been one of the complainers. The deputy told him, quote, We the 3,000 boys. The deputies on this floor let you guys get away with too much. The police here are too soft. That shit ends now. Then he beat William as he lay on the floor. The deputy tasered him with the help of two others. William was taken to the jail's medical clinic and interviewed about what happened. He said, quote, These 3,000 boys beat the shit out of me for no reason. The cameraman was ordered to, quote, cut the camera. William later filed suit with the county and settled for $100,000, paid for by taxpayers. The violent culture eventually spread to the 2,000 block of the jail, giving way to the creation of the 2,000 boys. They also share the tattoo on the calf like the 3,000 boys, but theirs depicts the Roman numeral two. Like the 3,000 boys, it's earned by beating inmates in custody and filing false reports to cover up the abuse. One custody deputy on the 2,000 block fractured the orbital bone of a non-combative inmate to earn his tattoo. There were several other instances of violence. Frank Mendoza, a gay man who was incarcerated in Men's Central Jail after an arrest for public drunkenness, made a joke about a deputy. The deputy said that men in lockup, quote, all walk like girls. Mendoza quipped to another incarcerated man, quote, there's a male who's unsure of his masculinity. The deputy grabbed Mendoza and slammed him against a wall, threatening him. What followed that night was disturbing. I remember, you know, being arrested for being publicly drunk and being terrified because I was in jail. And, and I had to um, let them know that, you know, I'm, I was gay and different. One of the officers made a threat against me and said that he was going to come get me later on. Everybody's pod was shut except my pod. And I remember what, you know, it seemed eerily quiet. I see the gentleman, the officer that threatened me earlier, coming towards my cage. I started screaming and yelling, and, um, you know, to no avail, nobody came to my rescue, and he just came in there and, and manhandled me and stripped me butt naked and, and um, sexually assaulted me and, um, left me naked, bloodied, and, and um, terrified. Multiple incidents like this led to complaints and an investigation by the ACLU. Deputy Michael Rathbun was assigned to Operation Safe Jails 
a unit that monitors gangs inside of the county jails. Rathbone worked with Deputy James Sexton. His father served as a chief within the department. Rathbun and Sexton specialized in turning incarcerated members of white supremacist gangs into informants. But there were also white supremacists, like the Vikings, working within the LASD. James and Michael were these two really smart, really enthusiastic young deputies who wanted to rise up the ranks, wanted to be good cops, and both had cops for fathers. And they were good humans. They were part of a group inside the jail that investigated things within the jail system. And they had an informant that told them that there was a gang shot caller inside the jail that was giving perks to one of the deputies. In February 2012, one of their informants told them that Deputy Joseph Britton was allegedly passing information to Charles Fritz Reimer, the top white supremacist shot caller in the L.A. County jail system. Reimer promised Britton that if he gave him information, he'd get free tattoos at his shop. Rathbun and Sexton put their suspicions of Britton in a memo to Greg Thompson, their boss, and an alleged Viking. They saw that something was going on on the inside, and they told Greg Thompson, their supervisor, who they liked a lot because he seemed really a strong guy and a real leader and a little bit of a badass, but not engaged in a little illegal activity. And he was also known to be very close to Paul Tanaka. But Thompson told Britton about the complaint, giving Britton a chance to cover his tracks. That also blew the informant's cover. He was moved out of protective custody and into general population, where someone tried to kill him in the showers. They reported it, and what uh, Greg Thompson did is allowed their report to be distributed throughout the jail, and that, as I remember, he put their informant back in general population, and it was just blind luck he wasn't killed. When he was jumped in the shower, he just managed, he was stronger and he beat the other guy, he beat the other guy down. Otherwise, he would have been dead. The OSJ team had no explanation for why the informant was moved. Sexton was later told it was meant to be a, quote, message from Thompson that bad things would happen if Rathbun and Sexton did not drop their complaint about the relationship between deputies and white supremacists. The intimidation towards Rathbun and Sexton didn't stop there. A confidential interview featuring Sexton appeared on YouTube. Thompson refused to investigate. Thompson also found out that Sexton received a call from the LA Times. He told Sexton and Rathbun that there would be consequences for speaking to the press. Additionally, Rathbun received white supremacist literature sent to his home, and another OSJ deputy told Sexton that he needed to keep his mouth shut about Thompson and Britton. The department's internal affairs looked into the claims, but the investigators had a good relationship with Thompson. Sexton was contacted in May 2012 by Internal Investigation Bureau investigator No Garcia, a reported regulator. Sexton says in a complaint that he believed this to be retaliation for his whistleblowing. Rathbun saw misdemeanor charges as he picked up a DUI bumped up to a felony. Sexton and Rathbun met with Sheriff Lee Baca as a last resort and got no relief. 
Tired of restless nights? Meet Lisa, the sleep expert. <sighs> Here at Lisa, we know that good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. That's why their mattresses are made for exceptional comfort and support, catering to every sleep need. Check out Lisa Sapira Hybrid Mattress, named best hybrid mattress five years running. Sleep hot? The Chill Collection is built with cool-to-the-touch top fabric and layers of high-density comfort foams, all intended to remove excess body heat while maximizing comfort. With Lisa, getting a new mattress has never been easier. Delivery is free, and you have 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. Don't spend another night dreaming of better sleep. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com forward slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. That's l-e-e-s-a.com forward slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. With ACLU investigations, retaliations, informant beatings, and more, Men's Central Jail soon found someone sniffing around their misdeeds, the FBI. FBI officer uh, Leah Marks, who was new and from Hawaii and had a background in social work and not terribly experienced, but she was starting to hear all this stuff. And uh, she decided she wanted to take a look at brutality and corruption inside at the men's central jail. And she was just poking around and they got an informant. That informant was Anthony Brown, who was incarcerated for robbing a bank. Brown was being used to... See if he could get a deputy to bring him in a phone or, you know, break the rules. And that was Anthony Brown, who was a bank robber, not the person that will probably be running for office anytime soon. But he's a bright guy and was interested in helping. And so one thing led to another. There was a deputy who agreed to get him a phone, and one thing led to another. That phone was supposed to be used by Brown to capture evidence of abuse and dirty deputies. He witnessed everything from smuggling items to corruption and brutality. He checked in weekly with an FBI handler. Brown's cover was eventually blown after deputies found and looked through his phone and realized he was working with the FBI. Sheriff officials visited FBI agent Leah Marks to intimidate her and threaten her with arrest right outside of her home. Lieutenant Greg Thompson ordered Rathbun and Sexton to transfer and hide Brown from the feds. That illegal order came from the top brass, 
Sheriff Lee Baca and Under Sheriff Paul Tanaka. The feds did is they gradually that there was this giant group of people interacting at the direction of Paul Tanaka and down from there, Greg Thompson. Brown was moved multiple times under aliases, such as Robin Banks, and held in solitary confinement with deputies around him all hours of the day, shielding him from the FBI. He was guarded over and moved for 18 days with no medical treatment. In 2012, Rathbun and Sexton began working with Marx's FBI investigation. But there was fallout from their involvement. Rathbun was suspended without pay, and Sexton was harassed by several deputies. The Internal Criminal Investigation Bureau investigators later told Sexton that one of the deputies, Michael Camacho, violated the penal code, but that L.A. District Attorney Steve Cooley would never file criminal charges. Sexton was told by another deputy not to enter the Temple Station for his safety. Sexton was cornered by Deputy Matthew Thompson, their boss's son, who was allegedly sent by Baca and Tanaka. Rathbun's car was found vandalized. Deputies Manzo and Gerard Smith both told Sexton and Rathbun that they would be physically harmed if they did not stop whistleblowing. Sexton and Rathbun's personnel files, only accessible by LASD officials, became publicly disseminated. Thompson, meanwhile, was transferred to a coveted position in the Narcotics Division. The LA Times eventually ran an article about the informant and the harassment of Rathbun and Sexton. Not long after the article was published, Baca called Rathbun and Sexton to his office. Both men told Baca they feared for their safety. Rathbun, who was Jewish, was subjected to anti-Semitic remarks from Baca himself. Multiple people said, under oath, that Baca repeatedly made anti-Semitic remarks, like using the phrase Jew money at a captain's meeting. In August 2012, Rathbun and Sexton testified before a grand jury in a case that brought down deputies, department brass, and Sheriff Lee Baca himself. The U.S. Attorney's Office described the case as, quote, a month-long scheme to obstruct the investigation, which included members of the conspiracy concealing the informant from the FBI, the United States Marshal Service, and the grand jury. Members of this conspiracy also engaged in witness tampering and harassing the FBI agent. Many convictions and guilty pleas, ranging from low-level deputies to retired higher-ups, came from the case. Roughly 30 people within the L.A. Sheriff's Department were indicted, with several being charged with blocking the FBI probe into abuses in the jail. Some deputies you've heard about throughout this series. Scott Craig, a former sergeant, and Marcella Long were convicted of lying to the FBI. Craig, who threatened FBI agent Marks, received 33 months in prison. Long was sentenced to 24 months in prison. Deputy Manzo received 24 months in prison. Deputy Gerard Smith received 21 months in prison. Lieutenant Greg Thompson received 37 months in prison and a $7,500 fine. He still collects an annual pension of over $150,000. Retired Lieutenant Steve Levins, an alleged Grim Reaper, received 41 months in prison. Tanaka, who was taking a leave of absence from his mayoral duties in Gardena, said during the trial that he never broke the law and cooperated with the FBI's request 
to enter the jails and talk to inmates. He said Baca slowed down the FBI's investigation. Funny enough, this slight division saw itself play out in the polls. In 2013, Tanaka announced he'd be running for the seat of his boss, Lee Baca. He eventually lost in a landslide to Jim McDonnell, who took 49.4% of the vote to Tanaka's 15.1%. Tanaka was eventually convicted on conspiracy and obstruction of justice in his part of the scandal. He was sentenced to five years in prison and was recently released. He's been spotted in Orange County playing golf. Baca wasn't charged with abusing inmates, but he was charged with participating in the attempt to cover it up. He pled guilty to lying to federal investigators on February 10th, 2016, and served less than two years in prison for his crimes. He got out in January of this year. I spoke to him on the phone, and he told me that he had no regrets and that I was a, quote, very dedicated reporter. As for Sexton and Rathbun, Rathbun was recommended for termination, despite the fact that numerous LASD employees have not been fired for receiving multiple DUIs. He still appears to be with the department. Sexton was convicted of obstruction of justice for his role in helping to hide federal informant Anthony Brown. Many of the people Sexton and Rathbun reported, and who faced charges in the grand jury case, continue to serve in the department, including deputies Joseph Britton, Michael Camacho, and Matthew Thompson. Internal investigator and alleged regulator No Garcia was promoted to lieutenant in 2013 following these incidents. He held that position as recently as 2019. The violence on the 3000 block, 2000 block, and in the jails has not stopped. Melissa Camacho Chung, a senior staff attorney of the ACLU, received so many complaints about the 3000 block, she went in to investigate last year. At the end of 2021, I received enough complaints from the 3000 block of MCJ that I went in and spent a couple of days interviewing people in the attorney room, interviewing people at the front of cell to try and hear what was going on and raise their concerns to command staff. So while there's no way we can investigate and actually determine whether or not the 3,000 boys still exists, our concern is that the reports of violence that we receive from MCJ, the reports of retaliation and harassment we receive from MCJ, and in particular reports from the 3,000 block, we're, we're very concerned that deputy gangs are still a very live issue. But the culture of the 3,000 boys was already making its way out into the streets of L.A., and the 3,000 boys were founding their own new deputy gangs. H-double-O-D, the whole hood know me. Fuck the police, I'm a fucking hood trophy. You've been listening to A Tradition of Violence, the history of deputy gangs in the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. Hosted and executive produced by Cerise Castle, music by Yellow Hill and Steels. We want to hear from you. If you have a question about deputy gangs or the LASD, please send an email to lasdgangs at gmail.com. For breaking news and updates on deputy gangs, follow at lasdgangs on social media. To support Cerise's reporting and for exclusive bonus content, subscribe to the LASD Gangs Patreon. If you're enjoying a tradition of violence, please give us a five-star rating and leave a written review. This is for the hood. 
With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. The wait is over. The shy is back on Paramount Plus, and the stakes have never been higher. Everything changes on the South Side when a new threat comes to power in the Showtime original series from Emmy winner Lena Waithe. Battle lines will be drawn, alliances will shift, and danger lies around every corner, leaving everyone to wonder who they can trust. Visit ParamountPlus.com slash TheShot to get a 50% discount off the Paramount Plus with Showtime annual plan. Offer ends July 14th. Subscription auto-renews. Restrictions apply. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org.